Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, what goes great with Liberty, guys? Alcohol. But what's second best? Coffee. You nailed it. We got a brand new Morning Roar line of coffee through Anarcho Coffee, which you can find at lionsofliberty.com forward slash coffee. But even better, if you're a Pride member at the $10 level or up, you get 15% off every order. That's on top of all the other great content you get. Conspiracy Corners, Degenerate Gamblers, Do Nothing Man episodes. And not only that, but you'll also get access to the Legion of Liberty Doom. So join today at patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Hey, hey, what do you say? On Gender Wage Gap Day, everybody. Actually, I guess this is not actually Gender Wage Gap Day. That was yesterday. So I suppose today would be like, you know, Christmas has Boxing Day in England the day after Christmas. So this is Gender Wage Gap Boxing Day. Not to suggest that men and women should necessarily be boxing in the same ring. I am opposed to that. And I don't don't really think that uh, people that were formerly men and women when they are recent configured, <laughs> recently reconfigured, I should say, should be able to beat on each other in the ring either, but eh, that's a completely different topic. Anyway, welcome to Electric Liberty Land, everybody. This is ELL118, meaning you can find all the show notes at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL118. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's kick the show off. I have a, uh, it's going to be a bit of a shorter show because I am getting flooring put in, which I just Got a text from my flooring guy being like, hey, man, can you do it tomorrow morning at 9.30 a.m.? And uh, my wife is leaving early to take the Poochie over to the Poochie uh, concentration camp, which he has to stay in because he's a pain in the ass if anybody's over. So long story short, I got to move a lot of crap out of two different rooms, stack it in two other different rooms. I don't know, maybe put a tarp on something outside to cover some of this shit up. It's going to be a big pain in my ass. So unfortunately, you guys are bearing the brunt of that will not get to hear me yell into the microphone as long as I usually do. But the good news is you get to hear me for at least a little while. And if that ain't enough to butter your buns, I don't know what is. So, yeah, let's let's start off talking about this this women's wage gap issue, which I, I mean, it is the zombie that won't die. I think I talk about it every year and every year, man, it comes back stronger than ever because every year people's Political views keep getting stronger in regards to uh, going down the route of identity politics. You've got the uh, the third wave feminists keep keep touting all the uh, the things that are wrong with society, despite the fact that empirically women in this country seem to have it vastly better than they ever have, and vastly better than virtually any other country's women by comparison. But that's just not enough, you know. They have to keep. Yeah, it's like it's like anything, you know. It's kind of like the United States when it comes to the war state. It's not enough to just be a piece. It's it's got to always be looking for the next 
battleground, the next war to fight. And that's the way it is with any of the any of these identity politics people with the feminists out there. It's never enough. And it doesn't matter how many studies are done that debunk it, that say that men and women's choices have vastly more to do with any sort of grand patriarchal scheme to keep women under the sole of our shoe, which is just utter, utter garbage. But regardless, every year we've got hashtag wage gap day or whatever the fuck it was on Twitter, gender wage gap war and all this other shit. And of course, this all goes back to studies that were done you know, back in the 80s, and they were you know, ill-conceived, badly undertaken, and ignored most of the factors which actually make the most sense. You know, for example, when they first did these studies, it was just purely comparing gender pay gaps as far as men worked this many hours, women worked this many hours. Aha! My God, look at the wage gap there. And I think it was that back in 1980, the site, the uh, study that everybody likes to cite, which had that women made 73 cents compared to the men's dollar. And of course, that was pretty hastily narrowed over the course of the past 40 years. You know, we're looking at 1980 at 36 cents or something like that was the wage gap. Now, the most recent results that they've done said that women aged 24 to 34, if you look at the quote unquote wage gap between them, it is down as low as 11 cents or even less. I've seen one that said it was down to 8 cents. So while I acknowledge that is still a gap, when we're talking about the actual results of the gap, that's even more easily explained than it ever was. Back when it was 36 cents, it was easily explained away by the choices because the, one of the reasons we saw a narrowing of the gap was because you had women opting not to stay home and raise children as much. You had women opting to wait longer in their careers to have children or opt not to have children at all. So you had women that were now functioning more, uh, I guess, competitively with men in the marketplace. You had women making choices which impacted the bottom line of their earnings, not only in the lifestyles they lead, but also the career paths they chose. And while you are never, ever going to equalize the amount of women and men in, say, the STEM careers, you're never going to, I mean, just, they've done studies on the psychological studies where women just simply prefer in the majority to not go into hardcore math, engineering, science careers, as opposed to social sciences, to things that involve more emotional connection with people, etc. I don't make the rules. I don't, I don't write the DNA codes. I just report the findings. And these findings have been pretty stark and pretty obvious. That's not to say that women can't and shouldn't go after any career they want, obviously. And they've been encouraged to do so to the point where you are seeing that have an impact in this gap. But like I'm saying, when you have a study that is repeatedly referred to back from 1980, and even the Pew Research uh, you know, Polling Foundation which released yet another new poll, acknowledges the fact that the gap as it is even today exists because of personal choices. And this says at the bottom of this article I was reading today from Pew Research. So mothers were likely as fathers to say, twice as likely, excuse me, as fathers to say taking time off had a negative impact on their job career, right? Just like I'm saying. Among those who took leave from work the past two years following the birth or adoption of the child, 25% of women said this had a negative impact at work compared with 13% of men. Right, naturally, because women are going to be spending far more time at home, typically, than men. Although in California, you have six months for, for each, I think. Maybe women have longer, but I know you've got at least six weeks as a man. And then it says, even though women have increased their presence in higher-paying jobs, traditionally dominated by men, such as professional and managerial positions, women as a whole continue to be overrepresented in lower-paying occupations. This may also contribute to gender differences in pay. Really, you think? 
Of course. Now, this is Pew dancing around the obvious. They don't want to come out and say, look, it's just the choices these people are making. But that is the inevitable result of these things when you narrow it down and narrow it down. I mean, they even had an instance in earlier uh, part of this article I'm reading where they said women actually make more money than men oftentimes if they're working overtime. So you have, you have women actually, I think it was something like 115% to a man's 100% of the overtime pay. And they said this was because more elderly women, oh, this is only for part-time jobs, by the way, obviously, because if you're getting overtime, typically it's a part-time job. But this is because you had older women in the workforce compared to men. I guess men would take more full-time work because they got older or retire. Not sure exactly. They didn't go into it. But still, we come back to Pew acknowledging whatever gender gap remains is not due to discrimination. And Tom Woods has made a statement about this, which rings true in that if you were going to discriminate, if you were, if you had the ability legally and morally uh, to choose to pay women less, let's say you were going to pay them 73 cents on the dollar compared to a man. Well, then if all things are equal, if women are completely uh, have the same abilities, the same intelligence, the same mathematical, scientific, managerial, et cetera, capabilities as men, well, then why would you not simply employ all women? And then Boom, overnight, your bottom line drops 30%, your profits skyrocket 30%, your stocks go through the roof. What a genius move. And we know that in a competitive marketplace, this is the option that every single company in America would take. Not only America, in the world. <laughs> Everybody would jump on it. So fundamentally, it doesn't make sense from a logical perspective. And when you have everyone working towards this goal, right? Which we've been working towards the goal of gender equality in the workplace for 40 years now. When you get through all of the false studies and all of the nonsense, you come to the simple conclusion that whatever remains, this eight to 11 cents wage gap that remains clearly is explained away by personal choices. And if we eliminate this wage gap and we have across the board equal pay, despite the fact that people choose to have lower paying careers, if we somehow have laws come into place, which mandate that women must be paid the exact equal statistical amount as men, then you're going to have people that are being vastly overpaid for careers like childcare or careers like, uh, I don't even know what else, you know, social sciences doing nonprofit work, wherein you have far lower profit margins, where you have far lower just caps as far as what you can actually pay your employees, especially in the nonprofit industry, social services. These are all very low paying businesses. So unless you want to have government cover that gap, step in and use taxpayer money to fund it and make sure everybody's got it even easy peasy, even it out. It's just complete utter nonsense. It has to be avoided. And in fact, I, I'm not saying this is necessarily the greatest idea, but I think we need our own march, you know, kind of like the women's march. They had the pussy hats go out there back before they ate the Ronin. We were showcased as a corrupt anti-Semitic institution, but we could go out there. We could have a whole fap against the gap, or I guess fap for the gap, where we also have a bunch of men out there. We're spanking it, showing people that this is all wasted motion, that we're all just jerking ourselves off talking about this every year because it is non-existent if you actually examine the data, if you examine personal choices. I don't know if it'll resonate with the people out there. Maybe they'll get the wrong idea and just think it's a bunch of perverts who like to jerk off on the White House lawn, but... Damn it, it'll be a spectacle either way. All right, moving on. Ugh, God, I realize I'm talking really fast. I think it's because in the back of my head, I know I need to get this done quickly. So I will try to slow down a little bit in order that I can get through this episode and not have you guys rewinding to figure out what the fuck I'm saying. All right, 
Let's talk about Trump signing a decree recognizing Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights. And this is something which, number one, completely undermines U.S. positions. Again, it, it will actually, it reinforces our position as the hypocrites of the world. But it undermines our position in regards to trying to fight against any other nation, primarily Russia, annexing parts of other countries. The Russians' uh, annexation of Crimea, 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 yeah, Crimea, eh, you know me, I ain't going to say it right. That's a perfect example. We cried to the heavens. Oh, my God, we can't allow this. These poor Crimeans, <laughs> Crimeans, whatever they call themselves, criminy, uh, these poor criminy Crimeans got annexed. I mean, it was a completely bloodless takeover, by the way. You know, and no people were hurt. And arguably, they didn't really give two shits that they were being uh, being annexed again by Russia, which one could argue had, had proper rights to that area anyway. But when you've got the United States protesting any sort of annexation by force, and you've got the United Nations saying that they will not acknowledge annexation by force, and this goes back decades, you know, like 40 years, 50 years, where the United Nations says, no, 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 we don't, we don't acknowledge this. People cannot be taken by force. We will not acknowledge that the, the country that has taken them over has any rule of law over those people, etc. And meanwhile, now we've got Donald Trump, again, cozying up to Israel, trying to support Netanyahu, who seems like he, he actually might be on the outs, but trying to support Netanyahu again, and covering over yet another example of Israel's blatant war crimes. I mean, we're talking about Israel and Palestine and what's going on there. I mean, there were just recent attacks back and forth. And of course, Israel always kills 10 times the number of people that are injured in Israel. You know, I think two people got injured and you know, 25 people get murdered over in Palestine every time this happens. Not to mention the people that are just getting sniper shot down that are 16, 17-year-olds running up to protest and throwing rocks. But you've got all these things happening in Palestine, which we're just glancing over. You know, we'll just look the other way. In the meantime, what happened in Golan Heights, and this is part of Syria, when they occupied this, they drove out the native people there. I'm trying to think of what their names were. I'll find it in a second. But they drove out the natives, uh, essentially, oh, the Druze, that's it, the Druze. But essentially drove these people out. I wouldn't say that they committed a, necessarily a genocide against them. But they forced them to leave their lands. They didn't do it through uh, through debate. I can tell you that much. And now Netanyahu is using this as an example, saying that the endorsement of Trump in regards to Golan Heights proves, his word, proves that Israel is able to hold occupied ter- territories. And if it's occupied in, quote, a defensive war, then it's ours. Now, maybe you could say that the Six-Day War was justified because it was Israel surrounded by these other forces and that there were skirmishes going back and forth with Syria and there was artillery fire exchanged and then Israel just happened to have all the best military arms. Go figure, right? Considering the United States supports everything that they do. But maybe you could say, okay, that was a defensive war. I still don't necessarily agree that you can just take people out uh, of their countries force them out of lands that they've lived on for generations and generations of people and then declare that it's ours unilaterally because you happen to have the the force of might on your side. But 
that one at least is a little bit more understandable than what's going on with Palestine and Israel, where they just continue to build these settlements. They continue to force people out. They have two different types of citizens within Israel, and they force people to be subservient to the Israeli uh, nationality. Or the I'm sorry, the Israel is not the nationality. Judaism is the nationality, which is just mind-boggling in its own right. But to use this as an example of why they can continue to keep the people of Palestine and keep Gaza in the state it's in and continue to push these people back and annex these territories is just sheer madness. And this is all on Donald Trump for allowing this kind of thing, for using the U.S.'s might, all of our tax money, all of our, I don't know, pooled resources as a nation to continue to allow Israel to do these type of things is just unconscionable. So, you know, We'll see what happens with Israel next, because it seems that they're being vastly encouraged to go out and continue what they're doing, as will other countries, because now you set the principle on the table. I mean, we can no longer stand up and say, hey, don't do that. Now, granted, I'm sure we will, because we are the world's greatest hypocrites. But I do wonder on some level, if this is all in an effort to say, okay, if you're Trump, maybe you're talking to Bibi in the background, and you're saying, what I'm going to do, I'm going to endorse, what I'm going to do, I'm going to endorse your annexation of Golan Heights, and that way you can use it as a negotiation standpoint to give it back to the Syrians and to calm things down in the Arab world. I don't know if that was the best Trump impression. But I don't know. Maybe that's something that's in mind. Maybe uh, this whole thing is a, a charade wherein Israel and Netanyahu can come out looking better than they are, although Netanyahu's statements certainly don't seem to indicate that. But with Trump, you never know. Of course, the other fear is, and this is the last thing I'll say about this little topic, the other fear would be that by saying, okay, Israel, now Golan Heights is yours, now the United States has one more reason to keep our asses over in Syria. Just by the way. So while we're talking about pulling the troops out of there, now what you're doing is giving all this ammunition to the to the Syrian fighters, to, to uh, Assad, to say, okay, well, now we got a new enemy to fight. Now the civil war is going to continue because you have these moderates over there trying to fight, but giving this territory to Israel is just going to gin up more response for the people that are more on the extreme side of things. We've got a brand new rallying cry now. Just stupid. All right, let's uh, go to a quick break. We'll be right back with some more topics. We don't rise to the level of our expectations, we fall to the level of our training. Those epic words from Archilochus can sum up your ability to succeed or fail in business. I want to recommend Conversation Mat Time to our listeners as a way to hone your one-on-one conversation skills in a role-playing session that can help take you to the next level. During 25-minute sessions, you'll work through the best way to approach that raise, that interview, or that relationship with a practice professional that will provide the confidence and experience you need to get paid what you're worth or take that interpersonal risk you've never been able to conquer. Just like in jiu-jitsu, the difference between a novice and a black belt is mat time. Train to win. Visit conversationmattime.com and take advantage of a free 15-minute consultation just for listeners of this show. All right, welcome back to Electric Liberty Land, episode number 118, everybody. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about here was that, you know, while we're talking about subsidizing other nations, and of course we subsidize the living shit out of Israel in regards to 
making monetary payments, making uh, payments in arms, giving them the corporate, or say not the corporate welfare, the war state welfare that I talked about a few episodes ago, where we give them money, they turn around and spend that money to buy our products, which of course are armaments. And we also just give them old armaments, uh, you know, kind of like a pass me down from a big brother to a little brother. But on top of that now, Thomas Massey tweeted out a new bill that was uh, passed on to, through the House, and they voted to subsidize energy for Europeans so Europe can be more independent of Russia. This is going to cost $416 million for the years 2020 to 2024. Now, I know $416 million to our government uh, and its massive debt that it's racking up of trillions and trillions of dollars every year may not be that much, but still quite a chunk of change considering the fact that it has absolutely no relevance to anybody here in the United States, that its design, and, and amazingly enough, its design seems to be to hurt Russia. That very same Russia that all the mass media keep telling us is still colluding with Trump. But it doesn't seem to me that Trump is really taking too much of a shine to Russia because every single thing he's done has been to antagonize Russia, has been to sanction Russia. And this latest thing, God, talk about a slap in the face. I mean, he's already pressuring Germany to ditch its relationship with Russia. And Germany is predominantly dependent on Russian gas for all of its incredibly expensive natural gas for heating since they abandoned, you know, anything having to do with fossil fuels. So, well, I guess gas is kind of a fossil fuel anyway, but they ditch carbon. You know what I'm saying. But this is kind of the most ridiculous type of reverse tariff I've ever seen in my life. Rather than taxing incoming goods to try to make American products more cost competitive, now we're simply printing up more money to try to subsidize other people's energy systems so that American products become more attractive. We're literally taking money from Peter to pay Paul here. This is just like the Israel deal. We're giving them money so that they buy our American products. So we're giving Europe money so that they buy our American products in the same way. But how exactly does that help the everyday American consumer when now our tax bills have skyrocketed, our inflation's going up because they're printing money to take care of all these things. And in the meantime, you're helping an industry which, while substantial in regards to the money it makes, is still not that substantial in regards to the actual amount of people that it, that it employs every day. I mean, instead of doing this nonsense, why don't we just allow Russia to go ahead, make the deals they want to make with Europe? Doesn't bother me. Doesn't impact my life in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, if we're not exporting all of that fuel over to Europe, well, I guess our fuel here would go down, wouldn't it? It certainly seems to me that if we're not using American tax dollars, so making us all poorer, to subsidize the Europeans' capability to buy our fuels up, well, the excess fuel that we have right here at home will make everything cheaper for every single person living in this country, not only via direct purchases of electricity, of oil, of natural gas, but also all of the industries that depend on our massive reserves of oil. Again, Donald Trump said, we've got it all in spades now, baby. We're a net exporter. But no, no, no. Forget that kind of thing. Forget allowing the free market to dictate the cost of these types of things. Instead, allow the government to step in, give Europe a little bit of a, a little bit of boost on the old American backs, and fuck us all in the ass. Great job, everybody in the house. Great fucking job. Oh, by the way, in related news, I want to talk about this too. This is Nancy Pelosi saying no vote on a new NAFTA deal until Mexico changes its labor laws. Because these things are are in line in that Nancy Pelosi has taken a stand because in her playbook defending 
the poor Mexicans and making sure that they get all the perks that Americans get, making sure that they get paid what they deserve is just as important as defending Americans and trying to stand up and get what's right for the country, right? Certainly seems that way. Maybe she knows that all the new voters for the Democratic Party are coming from Mexico, so she better stand up for them too. But she's insisting in a new uh, Politico playbook interview that Mexico has to pass labor law reforms required in a replacement deal for NAFTA. Otherwise, they won't vote for it. Quote, unless you do this, we can't even consider it. We have to see Mexico pass the legislation, that they have the factors in place that will make sure it's implemented, and they demonstrate some commitments and sincerity. Because it's a big issue how workers are treated in Mexico. Okay. Number one, I don't know why we are trying to advocate for Mexico to pay its workers anything. I mean, really, number one, again, zero to do with me other than the fact that they will want to come across the border more freely. And as I've said, my opinion on that would be open up the visa system, allow people to come over here, cross the border back and forth as many times as they damn well please. Don't give them the rights of citizenship. Don't give them the right to vote. Don't give them access to the welfare systems that we have in place here, but allow them to come across freely to work and go back to their homes in Mexico where they can spend the money that they made here, which has been taxed because they'll get a paycheck. We'll get to take taxes out of the paycheck, et cetera. Not that I'm advocating for taxes, mind you, but this is a system that I think would work vastly, vastly better than what we have in place now. At least you wouldn't have massive illegal immigration coming over here, taking advantage of the same services and not paying the taxes. So anyway, Nancy Pelosi, though, advocating for Mexico to change its labor laws, to make sure that people get paid the same living wage, right? And again, you know, what they're going to be advocating for isn't going to be up to the uh, the standard of living in Mexico. It's going to be more in line with an American standard of living, which is ridiculous to try to impose on another country that is a vastly lower standard of living in general and vastly cheaper cost of living. But this is just another example of America advocating for something that's going to make life more expensive and more difficult for Americans living here. Because all of the goods and services that we get so cheaply and plentifully from Mexico, we are now going to pay far more for. And I get what they're trying to do. They're trying to make, again, same fucking reasoning as with this Russia deal. They're trying to make it so that America is more competitive, that American textiles are more competitive, that American car companies will opt to stay here rather than go to Mexico. But you're simply hurting people's buying power in this country in efforts to protect a small aspect of American business. This shit just drives me up the wall. And, and you know, and nobody's pointing it out. Of course, you're not going to see anybody point this out in the mainstream media. But anything that's going to improve the cost of labor, or I'm sorry, not improve the cost of labor, anything that's going to, going to improve the lot of life for labor in Mexico is going to raise the cost of labor in Mexico, and that immediately passed on to us. And so what's going to happen? Okay, great. Now we can opt to buy American products that are just as expensive as Mexican products. So the people that are on the poorer end of the spectrum that are buying the cheap products now get fucked in the ass. They have less money to spend on education or shoes or medicine or food or whatever else they're going to spend money on. And who wins? Car industry. Good job, guys. You really fucked over the majority of the country in order to protect Ford. What a genius plan. Just aggravating. All right, moving on. Let's talk about the Senate 
voting nothing for the new Green Deal. Not a single vote. <laughs> that bad. It was such a piece of garbage. It was such a flaming turd, which no Democrat could put their boot out to stomp it to the ground. They wouldn't even touch it, these Democrats. I mean, literally. They wouldn't vote no on it, right? And they couldn't vote yes on it. So they just let the flaming bag uh, of shit sit on the porch. Just, just let it sit there and burn itself out. They all voted present, right? Every Democrat, except they think maybe there were a few Democrats that actually voted no. So good for them. But the majority of them, the vast majority, all voted present instead of no. Because since all the presidential candidates already put their names on this idiotic piece of trash, they couldn't vote against it. And they knew it would be political suicide to vote for it. Because anybody even associating their name with this thing would be roundly pilloried, and rightly so, for having zero economic literacy and assuredly putting America on the path to self-destruction. Now, there was a man who very valiantly gave a, uh, what I would term as performance art piece in the Senate. And that, of course, is Senator Mike Lee. You might have heard about this already, but I want to play a couple clips from this beautiful, beautiful work that he put together, uh, which I will title The New Green Deal, Reagan and Raptors. And I can't run the whole thing. It's like 13 minutes long, but I'll take little snippets out for you guys so you get a flavor for, for just how funny this speech was. I'm not immediately afraid of what the Green New Deal would do to our economy and our government. After all, this isn't going to pass. Not today, not anytime soon, certainly. Rather, after reading the Green New Deal, I'm mostly afraid of not being able to get through this speech with a straight face. For Mr. President, I rise today to consider the Green New Deal with the seriousness it deserves. And here he's got an intern that comes out with giant printed cardboard photos. This is, of course, a picture of former President Ronald Reagan uh, naturally firing a, a machine gun while riding on the back of a dinosaur. You'll notice a couple of important <laughs> features here. Uh, first of all, uh, the rocket launcher uh, strapped to President Reagan's back. And then the stirring, unmistakable patriotism of the velociraptor holding up a tattered American flag, a symbol <laughs> of all it means to be an American. Now, critics might quibble with this depiction of the climactic battle of the Cold War, because while awesome, in real life, there was no climactic battle. There was no battle with or without velociraptors. The Cold War, as we all know, was won without firing a shot. But that quibble actually serves our purposes here today, Mr. President, because this image has as much to do with overcoming communism in the 20th century as the Green New Deal has to do with overcoming climate change in the 21st. The aspirations of the proposal have been called radical. They've been called extreme. But mostly, they're ridiculous. There isn't a single serious idea here. Not one. So then he talks about how they want to eliminate airplanes and raises the specter of how would people get around in this environment. In a future without air travel, how are we supposed to get around the vast expanses of, say, Alaska during the winter? Well, I'll tell you how. 
Tauntauns, Mr. President. Naturally, he's got a tauntaun. This is a beloved species (laughs) of reptile mammals, native to the ice planet of Hoth. (laughs) Now, while perhaps not as efficient in some ways uh, as airplanes or as snowmobiles, these hairy bipedal species of space lizards offer their own unique benefits. Not only are tauntauns carbon neutral, but according to a report a long time ago and issued far, far away, they may even be fully recyclable and usable for their warmth, especially on a cold night. So then he goes in to talk about how Hawaii is dependent on travel and how would you cross the sea in regards to not having airplanes. And he throws out a picture of Aquaman, which is very funny. I'm not going to use his excerpt from that. We'll skip it forward a little bit and you can get a, a little taste of the finale. And the way that he leads into this finale is that he talks about uh, the virtuous signaling that is done by AOC and by members of the left in regards to climate change, how they sent out this document. And then they said that, oh, well, all this stuff that people are making fun of wasn't supposed to be in there in the first place, which and then he mocks them for not even be able to send out a press release. And yet they want to completely socially engineer the way in which we operate as a society and tear things down and build things up and do all these these grand schemes that will, as I said earlier, assuredly result in the destruction of the country. And then he goes on to talk about how babies are at the center of how to solve this thing. And I'll, I'll let him talk about that, and then I'll be back with a little commentary. Mr. President, this is the real solution to climate change. Babies. Climate change is an engineering problem. Not social engineering, but the real kind. It's a challenge of creativity, ingenuity, and most of all, of technological innovation. And problems of human imagination are not solved by more laws. They're solved by more humans. More people mean bigger markets for more innovation. More babies will mean forward-looking adults, the sort we need to tackle long-term, large-scale problems. American babies in particular are likely going to be wealthier, better educated, and more conservation-minded than children raised in still industrializing countries. As economist Tyler Cowen recently wrote, on this very point addressing this very topic, quote, by having more children, you're making your nation more populous, thus boosting its capacity to solve climate change, close quote. Finally, Mr. President, children are a mark of the kind of personal, communal, and societal optimism that is the true prerequisite for meeting national and global challenges together. The courage needed to solve climate change is nothing compared with the courage needed to start a family. So I'm going to cut him off a little early there because it kind of goes down wishy-washy lane. As you can see, it's kind of diverging there, despite the fact that he had the one of the best opening uh, salvos I've ever seen for any speech given on the Senate floor. And he really brought trolling and meme warfare directly to the Senate chambers. And I am immediately grateful having heard that. (laughs) Thankful for Mike Lee in this instance. I have my issues with Mike Lee here and there. Don't get me wrong, but he was dead on here. Hilarious and very poignant, you know, in talking about the challenges that we face and talking about, I really like the concept of bringing people to the forefront, bringing human ingenuity to the forefront. And I did, I had mentioned on the show before, I did a a buddy's podcast slash comedy show, kind of a live venue forum 
where I was on a panel, me versus uh, all uber lefties, uber lefty uh, eco nuts. But, you know, I held my own, I think, pretty adequately up there. But I had made this exact point that people presume that this train is going forward at one speed and that human evolution and human interaction and technology and the way we interact with our environment and everything is going to stay the same. And somehow, even if all the projections are true, right, that if the earth is indeed going to be doomed in 30 years and the sea levels arise and the carbon, blah, 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 do we not think that as humans, we would come up with solutions for this, whether that be free market or whether that be a collaboration of countries coming together or people coming together and voluntarily interacting to come up with a scientific solution for this this crisis that threatens Earth. I mean, do we need to make a movie? About it? Do we need to make an Armageddon about it? And instead of an asteroid, it's climate change. We, we already had a bunch of those stupid movies. They didn't have a solution in them, but they had the stupid movies. But it's just to think that we as humans, despite all we've overcome, and just look at the evolution of our technology within the past hundred years, for Christ's sake, and we're saying that in 30 years, oh, the world is going to end. In 30 years, we might all be zipping around by a teleportation. We might have fucking eyeballs that pop out of our heads and we can use them as cell phones at the same time. Who knows what we're going to have? And to say that we need to have these massive overhauls, which will set us back technologically, if anything, because you're trying to overhaul a system based upon fossil fuels, based upon manufacturing, based upon all these different things that require electricity and massive amounts of it, while completely upheaving the basis of society, the basis of the way people live, interact, while completely hyperinflating the monetary structure and causing people's wealth to disappear— I mean, what? I don't even know how you can compare those two and think that this new green deal would be the more logical solution. And Mike Lee does a good job of pointing out exactly how absurd it is and putting forth the concept which I agree with, which is human ingenuity. Now, I'm not necessarily that we need to start pumping babies out willy-nilly, although that runs counter to what AOC said, which is that she's not going to have kids because that's not socially responsible to this earth. You know, maybe having more kids is a good thing especially because the level of geniuses is dropping this country statistically. So yeah, have more babies. You know, I know people, uh, you know, especially uh, people of more means in countries like California and states like California, we're waiting longer to have kids just because the cost of living is so extreme. And why? Oh yeah. Because of the government, because of government regulations, interactions, forcing up the cost of housing, making it more expensive to run a business here and operate a business here. People are having less kids because of these things. The root cause, government. So, good job, Mike Lee. Get government out. Get less laws out of there. I mean, the one thing he he said that I I, I did laugh at, by the way, in that speech, and I, I muted myself. I was laughing over the first part, but I muted myself when he said that American children would be higher educated than children coming out of uh, industrializing nations. I had a little chuckle at that because I don't know if that's going to work out to be true. Tins, uh, seems to me that all the children coming out of an American educational system are pretty goddamn dumb and pretty goddamn indoctrinated to accept any idea the left has thrown out there. So I don't know, a lot of faith in those kiddos. I got a couple more quickies to hit on here before I wrap this episode. But before I do, I did want to give a quick shout out to my boy, Mance Raider, now known as Pete Raymond. 
and his great podcast, Free Man Beyond the Wall. Now, this is a podcast, if you haven't heard it, highly recommend you tune in. Pete is talking to lots of fantastic leaders of the Liberty Movement, really fantastic interviews, and not to toot my own horn, but in our most recent Liberty draft, I did, in fact, draft him with a second-round pick. Some said I was reaching, but I think if you listen to this podcast, and of course, this ties it perfectly with this episode because Pete has risen to fame on the power of memeing. Because God knows the left can't meme, baby. Left can't meme. So anyway, check out Freeman Beyond the Wall. Support my second round pick in our Liberty Draft. Give him the boost he needs to make sure that my team comes out on top. So as soon as this podcast ends, go listen to Freeman Beyond the Wall. Support Pete. Support Liberty. Boom. Okay. Last couple things. Number one, House panel approves a landmark bill to let banks serve pot businesses. That is awesome. Finally, what the hell is taking so long? You've got legal pot businesses in many states. You've got decriminalized pot in many more states. How can you still have a system in which banks cannot legally operate to function as a banking institution operating with perfectly legal businesses at the federal level? moronic. So the panels approved this bill. Thank God. Get it through. Pass it overall. Send it out there. Get it signed. Enough of the shenanigans. And then last, last, another uh, nice mention for Justin Amash's appearance on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Mark, of course, had Justin Amash, uh, the fantastic representative, Justin Amash, had him on to talk about whether or not he would decide to leave his Michigan GOP uh, status and instead adopt an LP status while staying potentially in his role as a representative for Michigan and potentially hmm, flirting with the idea of running for president. Mm-hmm-hmm. So we got a nice call out in Roll Call, which uh, if you're not familiar with Roll Call, kind of the OG political insider publication for the DC set. And uh, they gave us a nice link and a shout-out there, which is awesome to see. So thank you, Emily Kopp at Roll Call. Guys, check out that interview. I'll link to it in the show notes. I'll also link to her little write-up talking about Justin Amash considering a libertarian challenge to Donald Trump. Okay, that's going to do it. Again, apologize for talking fast. Apologize for a short episode. Apologize for my thoughts being a little bit more scattered than usual. I got to move a bunch of crap into a bunch of different rooms now. So for me, Brian McWilliams from the Lions of Liberty and from Electric Liberty Land, always stay plugged into Liberty.